to the uh, book of Revelation. Revelation uh, chapter uh, 21. I feel today kind of like Frodo at the end of the Lord of the Rings where they went through this incredible adventure and he gets back home and props up his feet and says, well, we're back. As most of you know, my uh, mother passed away the week before last in uh, Colorado Springs. And uh, what you see up there on the screens is the uh, great hall of the Glenary Castle where we uh, had her memorial service. And thanks to Eric Robertson, who was there, we've got a picture of it today. At the very front, spread over 20 seats, 10 on either side, was our family. And you know, family means so much at times like that, doesn't it? Today, I'd like to share that experience with, uh, with all of you, our church family. It'll be hard in a lot of ways, but somehow it uh, wouldn't feel complete. There wouldn't be, like, closure for Julie and me if I didn't tell you all some about what God did and what happened. Actually, several from our congregation drove all the way down to uh, Colorado Springs to be there for the service, all the staff and several others, but a number of them didn't make it, you may have heard, because of this 40-car pileup on I-25 going south, so they were lo- using the northbound lane for all the emergency vehicles, and so a number of them didn't make it So um, uh, until the service was over. So this is for you, too. If uh, you weren't there, or you were there, I I see two or three of you that were, my feelings won't be hurt if you get up and leave. Because I'll be uh, saying much the same things I did there. I'll have to depart from my normal practice of a half-hour message because I want to include you in all of it. And this is hopefully a worthy exception. We were in the same room where my mom and dad were married 42 years ago. I stood up with my dad. I was 14 years old. My, my sister stood up with my mom. And they were married. And then we were there we were again, back at the Glen, back at Glen Airy. Those two words bring back such memories. We lived there in the castle for years while my mother uh, was a widow. And so she wanted to be in the great hall of the castle one last time. You can't see it, but her casket is up there on the right side. One last time. So that's where we held the service. On the two screens, as you see up there, on either side were her uh, life verses. Psalm 73, 25, and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail. Indeed, hers did. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever as is happening right now. Here's what the guy up there in the pulpit was saying. This comes from yesterday's Gazette Telegraph, or a week ago. Um, And he said, Ruth Myers, 82, died November 9th, 2010 in Colorado Springs. She was a missionary with the Navigators, a popular conference speaker and beloved author, best known for her perennial favorite, 31 Days of Praise. Ruth was born May 14, 1928, in Council Bluffs, Iowa. 
She was married December 20th, 1952, to Dean Denler of the Navigators and served with him in Taiwan and Hong Kong until his death on June 19th, 1960. She married Warren Myers of the Navigators in the Great Hall of the Castle on December 1st, 1968, with whom she served until his death on April 17th, 2001. Ruth was a woman of the word, a lover of the Lord, in whose hands, in whose arms she found delight and rest. She really did. I began by saying that Julie and I were, as some of you know, we were at a Larry Crabb conference at the Cove in uh, uh, North Carolina when we heard that my mother was declining. So we got back as soon as we could to be at her bedside. We had parked our car at DIA, and wouldn't you know, we were in a rush to get down there before she left, turned the ignition, and guess what? The battery was dead. And I'm thinking, Lord, this is not the time to teach me patience. I really did feel like that. But within minutes, it was started. Amazing things happened there. And it was late that night when we finally arrived. And I spent the night in her room. And the next day, and I read to her the scriptures, hour after hour, uh, with, with, with tears. We went through the Psalms through uh, all of her favorite passages and through the, through the scriptures crowning chapters where I ended late in the day, um, uh, the night before she passed away, in Revelation 21 and 22. She did speak then, or kind of speak. She, by then she was in a mild coma. She was unable to communicate except once. At the end of the day, more powerfully than words can possibly tell, she spoke with, with, with this single tear that was streaming uh, down her cheeks. And why did she cry? Well, it was what I was reading. Of all that I read that day, there was one passage that, that evoked the most eloquent tear that I have heard in near 30 years of pastoring. It came late in the day when she heard the crowning chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. And so it's not surprising that she wanted me to speak at that service, not about her, but about heaven, about him. For whom have I in heaven but you? That's all that matters. And so what I did then and what I'm going to do today is to talk about the crown of the new creation. That was last Monday. New Jerusalem, which is the setting for the pearl of great price. The only one in the universe whose love matters. And maybe it'll be with us as it was with her. Maybe we'll shed a tear too. Out of this thrill of hope, the weary heart rejoices, for yonder breaks a bright and glorious morn. That's what Revelation 21 and 22 are all about. 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. We're going to see today that that someday we are going to, to be at a like a total loss for words, which for some people will be a true miracle. The sight of it's going to take our breath away. We're going to be thinking, so that's what we made possible. John picks it up again in verse uh, verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying... 
Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the 12 gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. We're going to have to summarize here because there's not time to unpack every verse. But all that means this. The most important thing about these verses that I've just read, and that is this. It's that the New Jerusalem is going to be historically rooted. Historically rooted. That is, it'll be the fruit of what certain people did down here thousands of years before. You and me included. Because what we do goes on forever. To begin with, names from old creation history will be written, it says, above the gates of New Jerusalem, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Why? Why will these names be there over the gates that the rest of us are going to uh, walk through? Well, it's because salvation came through the Jews, through all the believing Jews, down through the centuries, who faithfully copied the scriptures stroke by stroke and who sacrificed, you know, bulls and and goats looking to the final sacrifice, and Jews like Tamar and Perez and Obed and Ruth and Jesse and David, who ended up in this line and lineage of Christ, and thousands of others who God used in ways that we're not going to know till glory, will be able to enter the city only because of what God did through the Jews and what they did thanks to what he was doing. And someday they're going to be saying, as it comes down out of heaven from God, so that's what we made possible. Those open gates up here are because of our work down there. And on the foundation stones of the city, it says, will be the names of the twelve apostles. And they'll be saying it too. So that's what we made possible. The foundations up here are because of what we did down there. He's talking about the foundation of the church. But now we see it's also uh, the foundation of the city. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, I laid the foundation and another is building upon it. And Christ says, we're going to be the pillars of the city. And I wish there were time to go into it. I'm cutting out some here from the rest of the scripture. But it means our work is making that possible too. Because you see, as the church goes up, so does the city. I don't know any other way to read it. They're, they're like these parallel projects that are going on in uh, parallel universes. Now that he's gone, Christ is doing two things uh, simultaneously. He's, he's building the church and he's preparing what? Preparing a place. And the two are connected. 
It's kind of like one of those drafting tools. My dad told me about this years ago. He started out uh, as an engineer before he became a missionary. And they used to call it, I think they called it a pantograph, where whatever you draw, some of you might remember this, with one pen here is mechanically linked to another pen so you get this enlargement of the original picture. That was in the days before copiers and all the rest, except bigger. That's what's going on between these two building projects that he's working on. That's why the city is called the bride, just like the church is called the bride, because they're all about uh, the same thing in different dimensions. It's the new Jerusalem, Revelation 21.2, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And just how was she made ready for that day? Through the work of the apostles and of the prophets and of the twelve tribes, it says, of the sons of Israel, down through the centuries of old creation history, and through the work of all the saints. Through those same centuries of you and me. Because we are indispensable to building up the local church as we mature, as we grow, as we go passionately, as we are a caring community, as we grow in our intimacy with God. We also, 1 Peter 2.5, as living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood for a new Jerusalem. Now, listen carefully. Right now, these things... (laughs) are like, you know, all spiritual. The body of Christ that we are working on is kind of invisible. But the point here in Revelation is that the spiritual is going to become physically, the physical, the the invisible is going to become visible. The church will come down as the city, a city set on a hill, on this great and high mountain that John talks about in Revelation 21. That's why the writer of the Hebrews says that in coming to the church, we've actually come to the city. We've come to the city of the living God, Hebrews 13, 22, the heavenly Jerusalem to the general assembly and the church. They're one and the same. The church and the city are two sides of the same coin, each in a different dimension, the mortal and the immortal, the temporal and the eternal. And what we see is kind of like the underside of this tapestry where you see all sorts of tears and things hanging out and uh, knots and all sorts of stuff that doesn't make sense. Broken dreams, tragedies that don't make sense. The sound and the fury of life under the sun. But on the top side, we're going to see this masterpiece that by some miracle, all that made possible. And someday we'll see. Someday what some say is just a pie in the sky and the sweet by and by, you know, with clouds and harps and weightless angels and and who would ever want to go there. Someday it'll come out of the sky as uh, the most celebrated project of all time. And our hearts are going to swell with pride. And we'll be at a loss for words. And the sight will take our breath away. And we're going to be thinking, so that's what we made possible. Vast dimensions and only the best specifications. Verse 15. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. 
The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which are also divine measurements. This is one of the most amazing verses in all of the Bible. He measured the city by human measurements, and he said these are also divine uh, measurements, which means that they are real measurements, and not just, you know, spiritual or symbolic or cloudy or mystical. And that's because it's going to be a real city uh, and not just a mystical state. And not only is it only going to be a real city, it'll be real big. If you take 12,000 stadia, which is 1,500 miles, if you take 1,500 miles of width, as it says it is, by 1,500 miles of length, you get a total land area, of uh, a footprint, you might say, of 2.25 million square miles, which is roughly the land area of the continental United States. You get more living space in New Jerusalem than than presently exists on this whole planet. A lot more. In fact, this whole world has a a land area, I calculated a while back, of roughly 57,280,000 square miles. Which means that the New Jerusalem will have 60 times more living space than planet Earth. And that's just, that's assuming a mile between the floors. All told, it'll contain 3.37 billion cubic miles. It'll be as much a a, a country as a city. It's going to be this whole world unto itself. It'll have enough room not only for all the saints, but for the angels, and more than enough space for dedicated greenways and national parks and regions the size of countries for outdoor activities and this pristine wilderness sanctuaries with mountains to climb and rivers to ford and lakes to fish and who knows what else. Now, I don't care much about the lakes to fish part. I hate fishing. I've got to admit it. But it also says that there will be a book there, right? The book of life, which means that there's going to be such things as books. So clearly, that's a place worth going to. And if you're an outdoor person, which I'm more and more becoming, well, you could say, like, you know, Summit County, eat your heart out. It'll be the best of the city and of the country combined. Actually, um, it'll have all the creature comforts and all the wilds of creation. It'll be all of that and a whole lot more. Now, if you were to take it all in from a distance, actually, you'd have to back away a fair distance to take it all in, back several hundred miles. But looking at it from a distance, the cityscape that you'd see would be unlike any other. The overall line would be up and down with all sorts of mind-boggling, you know, architectural features, fantastic shapes that divide, defy the law of physics in the Old Testament, these majestic ramparts stretching upward ever higher to a peak of 1,500 miles. The wall of the city would be barely visible from that distance, just like this bright line along the ground, if you could see it at all. But if you made your way back to 
the foot of the wall, you'd get quite a different view. In verse 12, it's called a great and high wall, all of 72 yards high. That's three quarters of a football field topping out at 21 stories. At the base of the wall, you know, the, the wall would just tower silently above you majestically stretching up to the sky. And if you look to the right or the left and to the right, it would stretch on either side of you as far as the eye could see to the vanishing point of both horizons. There's much more, but suffice it to say, it'll be real big. And I'm going to have to move on here, but it'll be luminous. It'll be a long, lustrous wall. It'll be built to last forever. It'll be the eternal city. And there will be so much more. But it all climaxes in verse 22 and following because all of this is going to be just like the frame, you know, for the picture, the setting for the pearl. It'll be the vessel for something of uh, infinitely greater value. Because you see, the city, best of all, is where, is where God will be. It starts in verse 21, or 22. And again, there's not time to unpack these verses. There really isn't in a way that would do them even an ounce of justice. So we'll just have to read them. Unadulterated, you know, by a very imperfect preacher. <laughs> And, of course, that'll be far better. These verses that I'm about to read are all it took to call out the most eloquent tear I have ever seen. Revelation 21, starting in verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. And they will bring the honor and the glory of the nations into it. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of her, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. We could spend many verses on just these, weeks on just these verses, and someday we may. But the main point is this. John says it several times. Verse 22, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty are its temple. Verse 23, the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Chapter 23, verse 3, And the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and they shall see his face, for God himself shall dwell among them. This is going to be 
by far the best part of the whole new creation. The presence of God himself filling every cubic inch of those 3.37 billion cubic miles. When we're there, it'll be like Christ said in John 17. The one thing that'll be best about all of it is that we're going to be with him. For I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there what? You may be also. One thing have I asked from the Lord, David said, that shall I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Whom have I in heaven but you? It was on both sides. And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My heart and flesh may indeed they will fail. But the Lord is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My mother knew of his fullness. She, he was her portion forever. But she also knew that she had only, for all that she had, she had only tasted it compared to what we've been seeing today. But only tasting of the Lord in her growing intimacy with him which is our foundational value. Only tasting him, I'm telling you, forever spoiled her for anything else. She knew of his fullness because she knew about emptiness. Losing two husbands, almost losing a son when I strayed from the faith, which she said, not at the time I was doing it to put a guilt trip on me, but once God had brought me back, she said that was far harder than being a widow. She knew about the emptiness uh, without which there's not going to be all that much room for him with any of us. The emptiness that many of you know too. Many of you, too, have been graced with something. It's like one man said, you, you, sometimes you feel you've been graced with a disaster that your soul requires to find its way home. When a mother dies, you say, I've been graced with a disaster that my soul requires to find its way home. His agenda is to empty us for him. My father and my mother have forsaken me, David said. I've been reamed out. I've been empty. I feel like I'm an orphan. I'm a king, but I feel like an orphan. They've forsaken me. That was when they died. But the Lord will lift me up, which is his agenda, to fill the emptiness. Some of you know that our first father, my mom's first husband, Dean Denler, um, died uh, back in 1960 when we were missionaries in Hong Kong. And one morning, a few days before he passed away, he woke up and he told her that he had seen heaven that night and he had, that he had almost died and that he had seen heaven. And she said, did you? What was it like? And he struggled for words. He was only whispering because he was about to die a couple of days later. Didn't have much of a voice. And then he said, words can't express it. And then he struggled for words again, he said, and he started to mouth the words of the hymn, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. 
And she supplied the sound as he supplied the, uh, the spirit. And they sang together, it'll be worth it all when we see Christ. One glimpse, just taste him, of his dear face. All sorrow will erase, so bravely run the race till we see Christ. Two days later, he died. Almost exactly 50 years later, I was grown up. I was seated by her bed, holding her hand. I've been reading to her, as I've told some of you, uh, for an hour or so through the psalms that she so loved. And it was, it, it, it's hard to put to words what her countenance looked like, what her spirit was saying. Her eyes were closed, and though she wasn't able to communicate with words, it was like the word of her beloved was literally lifting up her spirit as on eagle's wings. It really was. She so wanted to go. She was so ready. Her spirit just needed to be born, you know, up and away. And so I kept reading. And then not knowing what was about to happen, I turned to 1 Corinthians 15, the great chapter on the resurrection. And when I had read, sown perishable, raised imperishable, she opened her eyes. And I read on. And after verse 34, I said, I looked at her and I said, Mom, do you remember this verse? This is the one that was on, that's on Daddy's tombstone in Hong Kong. That was 50 years ago, Mom. And she turned her eyes. She had been staring off. She turned her eyes and she looked into mine. And she fixed on mine from like deep in her departing spirit. They were so warm. And motherly, grateful, and even proud. And they made a bigger man of me. And as I read the verse that had meant so much to our family over 50 years, as I read those powerful words, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? As I read that, she breathed her last. And then there were a few gentle movements, three of them, like her signal long ago to me when she'd squeeze my hand, I love you. And I had just gotten into the middle of the next verse, and I said, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The following verse, the last in the chapter, chapter, was for all of us, for the company of family and friends that were around the bed and uh, uh, around the world. A verse that she had long since made us memorize 40 years ago. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. There was like this, this fullness, this golden silence. And then I put my hand on her brow and I said, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you 
and give you peace. And we knew that his face was shining on her at that very moment. And we also knew that this is a blessing that she would want to leave for us all. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you like he did with her and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. As my sister wrote, she's in heaven with Dean Dindler, our first father. Warren Myers, our second. Her sister Mary and her best love, Jesus. You know, the whole of human history is the story of a father raising up a bride for a son. As someone said, this is the kind intention behind all creation at which we bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Which we then went on to sing there in the great hall of the Glenary Castle. How great thou art. Whom have I in heaven but you? And we'd sing it today, but our time is up. So you'll just have to imagine that part of it. Father, we want to thank you. We want to thank you this Thanksgiving season as we look forward to Thursday. That no matter what happens to us, in light of what's before us, Though we do grieve, there's always more reason for gratitude than for grumbling. Help us to go from here now ready to give an answer, to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Servers, why don't you come forward? This is our Benevolence Offering Sunday. And in light of all this, I think it's fitting that we give him just a token of our appreciation by contributing to an offering. For he says, to the degree that you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it unto me. So let's do this unto him.